Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. I'm your reader, Grace Barter. In today's headlines in Cedar Falls, planning is underway for a roundabout at the dangerous First Street and Union intersection in Cedar Falls. Iowa Department of Transportation and city officials confirmed a roundabout as the preferred traffic control measure after completing a safety analysis for the West First Street, Iowa Highway 57, and North Union Road intersection on the western outskirts of town, said Peter Hemstead, DOT District 2 Field Services Coordinator. We've had discussions with the city. We've had discussions as DOT staff, and that is the direction we are moving in. DOT decision came after an impassioned group of residents packed a city council meeting December 4th seeking improvements. Six people were injured in a crash at the intersection in November. Stop signs halt Union Road traffic from the north and south, whereas eastbound and westbound vehicles on 1st Street travel through the intersection uninterrupted. The speed limit of 55 dips to 50 at the intersection for vehicles traveling eastbound and then down to 45 a little further into town. The DOT estimates approximately 7,000 vehicles pass through the intersection per day. Additional safety improvements were made to the intersection after that December council meeting, including the trimming of shrubs and trees impeding driver's sight distance. Planning is underway for a single-lane roundabout, but the design and construction is not a foregone conclusion, although opponents of a roundabout are no longer on the council. Hemstad said a roundabout was deemed the best option because of the types of crashes and the many left turns at the intersection, as well as the community's familiarity with roundabouts and the anticipated growth in the area. He said construction could start in 2026, but details are being ironed out. Cedar Falls has not always embraced the roundabout concept, but seemingly has turned the page. They have a higher upfront cost compared with traffic lights, but reportedly save money in upkeep and are more efficient and safer, reducing the probability of a crash. And if collisions happen, they are at slower speeds and not head-on. The intersection had been on the city's radar before the outcry and is a stone's throw from where the controversial Autumn Ridge housing project is proposed. City Administrator Ron Gaines told city council attendees at the time that leadership previously put pressure on the Iowa DOT to act and had hopes the latest pleas would lead to more results. The DOT says it had made lots of improvements to the intersection over time. For example, right and left turn lanes on 1st Street and stop signs with flashing beacons on Union Road have been added. The preliminary cost estimate for intersection reconstruction is $1.5 million. 1st Street is a state roadway. Costs would likely be shared between the city and state. Wick said it's possible the city could take on awarding the project. In more Cedar Falls news, the city and a consultant seek input through sessions and a survey for downtown Cedar Falls parking. 
The city is asking residents about their downtown parking experiences and ideas. That will help determine, hopefully once and for all, whether a downtown parking structure is needed, what that would look like, where it would be constructed, and what it might cost. Meetings are scheduled at 6 p.m. February 26th and 1.30 p.m. February 27th in the second floor meeting room of the Cedar Falls Public Library located at 524 Main Street. An online survey will be available from February 19th through March 4th. The City Council in October contracted with Fishbeck, a construction, engineering, and architecture firm with offices in Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan, in a 4-3 to three vote for the latest parking study at a cost of $39,343. Evidenced by the split council vote and the long history on the issue, elected officials will likely have to be convinced to move forward with what could be upwards of a $20 million investment. A city news release states that meetings and survey will be used to study parking occupancy, policy, and potential future parking needs. Officials have said in the past a pay-to-park system for public spots outside and inside the ramp would likely accompany a structure if one is constructed to incentivize people to use it and to help pay for day-to-day -day operations and upkeep. City and consultant staffers will be at the meetings to provide information and gather feedback. The public can stay updated by signing up for email and text notifications. The council could hear about the study findings as soon as next month and will receive a final report by June. In more Cedar Falls news, one person was injured Friday night when a mobile home caught fire. Cedar Falls Fire Rescue was dispatched to 2206 Zircon Lane at 11.44 p.m. for a blaze that engulfed the middle of the structure, according to Captain Shea McNamara. Six occupants there at the time of the fire evacuated, but one received burn injuries while exiting. Fire crews arriving on the scene found heavy fire and smoke had extended through the center of the trailer. Fire crews were able to extinguish the blaze. The cause of the fire is under investigation. Cedar Falls Public Safety was assisted by Blackhawk County Consolidated Dispatch and Mercy One Medical Center. In further headlines, Central Rivers AEA 267 hosts Iowa legislature leaders in Cedar Falls. While legislation has stalled on a major overhaul of area education agencies, there may still be more uncertainty than usual about funding for the upcoming fiscal year. Yet, AEA budgets for 2024 and 25 had to be submitted to the state by Saturday. The Central Rivers AEA Board of Directors on Wednesday approved a $61.95 million budget for the fiscal year starting July 1st, which is a 6.42% increase over the budget document approved for the current year. Officials note that the approved budget is a 2.86% increase over the re-estimated numbers for the current year. 
The spending plan is growing by $3.74 million, or a $1.72 million increase over the re-estimated numbers. It includes $10.21 million for classroom instruction, as well as $39.06 million for student and instructional staff support services. Another $8.36 million is budgeted for general, school, and business administration. Remaining line items for purchasing plant operations, student transportation, non-instructional programs, facilities acquisition and construction, debt service, and other support services comes to $4.32 million. Revenues for 2025 are budgeted flat, Combs said, with minimal growth in certain areas. Revenues are not expected to grow with the exception of a 3% increase to any sharing agreements. Barring changes in legislation, she also noted that salaries and benefits are budgeted at a 3% increase, while other expenses are budgeted at 2% more. Officials emphasize that the 3% budgeted for salaries is a placeholder increase until more information on state funding is received. State foundation aid is set at $17.52 million, while juvenile home tuition aid and other state revenues are estimated at $5.75 million. Federal funding is set at $17.93 million. Property tax revenues are estimated at $13.97 million, Tuition and transportation earnings on investments and other revenues from local sources total $9.08 million. Both state aid and property tax funding are based on enrollment levels and flow to the agency through the school districts it serves in northeast and north-central Iowa. State funding amounts have not yet been determined and adjustments will be made once they are. The stalled legislation, as proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds, includes reforms that would limit the amount of money available to the state's nine AEAs. In addition, funds that currently flow to the AEAs from the state through school districts would go directly to districts. Districts would not automatically send the money to the AEAs if they decide to receive special education and a range of other services through a private provider, which would get the designated funds instead. Other news includes that authorities allege Sean Grundy caused $30,000 worth of damage and stole around $1,000 worth of property when he broke into the Happy Hippo Car Wash, located at 5414 University Avenue in Cedar Falls. Staff found the door forced open December 18th, and investigators were able to identify Grundy from security camera footage, according to court records. On Saturday, police arrested Grundy, 41, of 5603 Dalton Drive, on warrants for first-degree criminal mischief, third-degree theft, and third-degree burglary. Bond was set at $17,000. In area news, a primary care clinic is to open in Denver. 
the Cedar Valley Primary Care and Walk-In Clinic, a branch of Cedar Valley Medical Specialists, will open a Denver location in March. The new clinic will be located next to Larson Family Chiropractic at 160 East Main Street in Denver, and the surrounding area residents will receive medical care for an array of conditions, including minor illnesses, chronic disease management, women's health, and more. Libby Ulenhop will lead the new clinic. She currently provides care at the Waterloo location. Ulenhop said, we also want to offer access to several different specialties to the Denver community. This coordination of care will create continuity and efficiency in the delivery of care. The Denver Clinic will have its grand opening in March. Patients do not need a referral or appointment to be seen. Cedar Valley Primary Care and Walk-In Clinic currently has clinics in Waterloo, Parkersburg, and Shellsburg. Black Hawk County Sheriff is to hold some book signings. Black Hawk County Sheriff Tony Thompson will hold book signings and talk about his new book, Any Place But Here, The Uncomfortable Convergence Between Mental Illness and the Criminal Justice System. Times and places of the signings will be noon to one Tuesday at the Marion Rotary Club, Indian Creek Country Club, 2401 Indian Creek Road in Marion, from 5.30 to 8 p.m. on Thursday at the Waterloo Symposium Group, Sunnyside Country Club, 1600 Olympic Drive in Waterloo, noon to 1 p.m. on February 20th with the Waterloo Kiwanis Club, Waterloo Elks Club, 407 East Park Avenue, Waterloo, and at the, from 9.30 to 10.45 on February 22nd at the UNI Interdisciplinary Study of Disabilities class, Schindler Education Center, Room 158 at UNI in Cedar Falls. In news coming out of the University of Northern Iowa, more than 3,000 first graders are expected to participate in the 18th African-American Read-In on Thursday. 64 schools from public and private school districts from throughout Iowa will join the free virtual event hosted by the University of Northern Iowa College of Education during the virtual event. Coordinator Tarana Matlub Hanakar, Associate Professor of Literacy Education, says, it's important for kids to learn about the many aspects of diversity, have discussions about diversity, and learn about books by African-American authors. This event is designed to connect students and teachers with authors, illustrated, illustrators, and African-American literature and arts. Among the presenters are well-known author Michelle H. Martin and award-winning children's book illustrator, R. Gregory Christie. Martin is the Beverly Cleary Endowed Professor in Children and Youth Services in the Information School at the University of Washington. She will read Where's Rodney? written by Carmen Bogan and illustrated by Floyd Cooper. As co-founder of the nonprofit Camp Readorama, 
which uses children's book as a springboard for literacy immersion programming, she believes in reducing the distance between books and real life. Virtual events like the African American Read-In provide greater access to literary experiences, Martin said. Christie will lead a draw-along with students. He is known for his programs on art, diversity, and literature, and is a past Caldecott Honor and NAACP Image Award winner. Lee Zeitz, an associate professor in UNI's Department of Curriculum and Instruction, will provide a brief magic show between the read-along and draw-along activities. Said Matt Lubhag-Honecker, We also have a Facebook page that's new this year where we've started posting excellent African-American books and lesson plans so teachers can add them to their everyday lessons. The Facebook group is designed for first-grade teachers and UNI faculty and students interested in book discussions, for example, and showcasing student work. Last year, about 2,000 students participated. It was the first year the read-in was extended fully across the state. This year's effort has further broadened the event's reach, providing access to more first graders and their schools, Matt Loeb explained. Registered schools will be provided a link to access read-in activities. Registration includes first graders from a mix of 147 mostly public but also private school classrooms in 64 schools and 29 counties from across the state. The National African American Read-In is sponsored by the Black Caucus of the National Council of Teachers of English and endorsed by the International Reading Association. Tax help is being offered by UNI students at no cost. University of Northern Iowa accounting students are providing free help preparing income tax returns through the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program. The service will be offered from 6 to 8 p.m. Wednesdays from February 14th through April 3rd, excluding March 13th due to spring break. Registration starts at 5.30 p.m. in room 223 of the Curris Business Building. Walk-ins are accepted along with drop-offs for virtual tax return preparation. Appointments are not being scheduled this year. People are encouraged to arrive early to sign in and complete the required intake interview form before being assigned to a tax preparer. Only a limited number of returns will be completed each night. Students will electronically prepare and e-file federal and Iowa tax returns for eligible taxpayers. Accounting students have completed a one-semester comprehensive tax course, plus additional training for IRS certification, and have access to a variety of federal and state reference materials. Taxpayers seeking assistance should bring the following. Social Security cards for the taxpayer, spouse, and dependents, a valid photo identification, a copy of last year's federal and state tax returns, Form W-2 
wage and tax statement from each employer, forms 1099 for such things as interest, dividends, or retirement payments, a list of other incomes and expenses, form 1098-E, student loan interest statement, form 1098-T, tuition payment statement, also bring into institution billing statement, form 1095-A, if health insurance was purchased through the marketplace, banking information, account and routing numbers, for direct deposit of refund, and all other information pertinent to your 2023 tax return. For more information, call the UNI Department of Accounting at 319-273-2394. Rounding out our local news, Congresswoman Ashley Hinson announced her nominations to the U.S. Service Academies for the class of 2028. Area students include to the U.S. Air Force Academy, Cole Wilson of Cedar Falls, to the U.S. Military Academy, Jake Holston and Sean Wegman of Cedar Falls, Aiden Sullivan of Nashua, and the U.S. Naval Academy, Jake Holston and Sean Wegman of Cedar Falls. I am honored to nominate these exceptional young Iowans to our U.S. Service Academies, Hinson said in a news release. Their dedication to serving our country is inspiring, and I know they will be among the next generation of American patriots who will defend our freedoms. I am grateful to them and to their families and wish them all the best as they answer the call to serve our great nation. Each year, students receive a nomination to apply to one of the four U.S. service academies. Hinson can nominate students from Iowa's 2nd Congressional District to the service academies. For more information, contact Hinson's office. In Iowa news, Iowa House Republican lawmakers advanced a bill through a subcommittee Monday to create a pathway for Iowa school districts to arm trained staff. The legislation would also require Iowa's 11 largest school districts to have at least one private security guard or school resource officer in each district high school. The fastest way to respond to a school shooting is to have armed personnel on site, trained, and available to respond at a moment's notice said Republican Phil Thompson, a Republican from Boone, lead sponsor of the bill and chair of the House Public Safety Committee. With this bill, we create a new permit with a strict training regimen that will result in more men and women in school buildings ready to respond to keep students safe, said Thompson, who voted Monday along with Rep Representative Schuyler Wheeler, a representative from Hull, to advance the bill to the full House Public Safety Committee. Wheeler also chairs the House Education Committee. The move comes in the wake of a shooting last month at Perry High School that killed 11-year-old Amir Joliffe, a sixth grader, and Principal Dan Marburger. Six other people were injured in the shooting. The 17-year-old student who opened fire died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot. Representative Beth 
Wessel Crochelle, a Democrat from Ames, voted against the bill, saying students would be less safe. Opponents said an armed teacher was much more likely to shoot a student bystander or be shot by responding law enforcement than to be an effective solution to an active shooter in a school. Lawmakers should instead pursue an evidence-based intervention plan that addresses school violence, she said. House Study Bill 675, titled the Students First Safety Act, would create a new permit that allows employees at Iowa's public and private schools and colleges to carry a firearm. Employees would be required to undergo a one-time, in-person legal training, including training on qualified immunity, annual emergency medical training, and annual communication training, approved by the Iowa Department of Public Safety. This bill would also require the Department of Public Safety to host an annual live scenario training and quarterly live firearm training for school employees of educational institutions that opt into the program. School staffs issued a professional permit to carry weapons by the Department of Public Safety and who are up to date on their training would also be entitled to qualified immunity from criminal or civil liability for all damages incurred pursuant to the application of reasonable force at the place of employment. The bill does not specify which type of firearms staff would be allowed to carry, who would supply the firearms to school staff, or how they would be secured and stored. The district's insurance carrier, EMC Insurance Company, said it insured districts that provided qualified law enforcement officers in schools, but that coverage did not extend to armed teachers or school staff. Some supporters of the bill said providing qualified immunity, insulating armed school staff from legal liability would help, while others said the insurance issue still needed to be addressed for districts that wished to move forward with selecting, training, and equipping armed staff. Catherine Lucas, a lawyer with the Iowa Department of Public Safety, told lawmakers the agency has a lot of unanswered questions about the bill, like what kind of weapons school staff would be allowed to carry, and who would do the required training for armed school staff. HSB 675 also mandates that school districts with a student population of at least 8,000 are required to have at least one armed private security guard or school resource officer in each district high school. School districts would not receive additional funding to cover the cost, but could apply for up to $50,000 in financial assistance through a new school security personnel grant program that would be established by the Iowa Department of Education. For districts with a student population of less than 8,000, it would be optional to have armed security at high schools. Hayes said the bill failed to provide adequate training for armed school staff and that its provision of qualified immunity to armed school personnel raised concerns about accountability and oversight. 
parents, law enforcement, and school superintendents from rural communities, as well as gun rights activists, said while school resource officers play an important role in Iowa schools, it is unrealistic to expect a single police officer is always going to be at the right place at just the right time should tragedy strike. In separate legislation, House Study Bill 692 aims to bolster school security infrastructure. The bill would require schools to complete a comprehensive review of their safety and emergency response plans and submit the review to law enforcement before the 24-25 school year, create a fund to install radios capable of accessing the statewide interoperable communication system in all school buildings that don't currently have them. The radio system helped law enforcement coordinate their response to the shooting at Perry High School. Implement firearm detection software in three Iowa schools through a pilot program. Establish a task force to create recommended school safety standards in building code. Require students starting in 2026 to meet these school safety standards before using any SAVE funds on athletic facility projects. You are listening to the reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, February 13, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Marie Ann Abkus, 90, of Cedar Falls, died at New Aldea Lifescapes Memory Care Unit on Sunday, February 11th. She was born in Waterloo on October 26, 1933. Marie was employed by John Deere and retired from Hy-Vee at Crossroads. She married Milo Venshoyuk, and they were later divorced. She married the love of her life, Ted Apkis, on January 25, 1980. Marie loved her family, friends, playing cards and dancing. She especially enjoyed all of the trips she took with her husband and grandchildren. She was actively involved in her church, Bethel Presbyterian, for 32 years. The family would like to thank the staff at New Aldea Lifescapes Memory Care Unit for their excellent care of Marie over the past two years. Visitation will be held in the Larson Chapel at Nazareth Lutheran Church in Cedar Falls on Thursday, February 15th from 5 to 7 p.m. The funeral service will also be held at Larson Chapel at Nazareth Lutheran Church, Entrance 7, in Cedar Falls on Friday, February 16th at 11 a.m. Burial to follow at Garden of Memories in Waterloo. Memorials may be directed to the family for future designation. Ramona Bookman, 90, of LaPorte City, died Saturday, February 10th at LaPorte City Specialty Care. She was born June 23, 1933. Raised by her Aunt Dora and Uncle Arnold Matias, she graduated from Denver High School. She married Norman Bookman on November 29, 1953 at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Waterloo. Ramona worked as a bank teller at LaPorte City State Bank 
nor West Bank and Wells Fargo for 25 years. She also provided home daycare. She and Norm were active members of Laporte City American Lutheran Church. She was an avid gardener and canned many things from her garden. She was a member of Laporte City's Ladies Bowling League for many years. She loved spending time with her friends and traveling to Texas in the winter. She also enjoyed walking regularly. Services will be held at 1030 Thursday, February 15th at the American Lutheran Church with burial in the West View Cemetery, both in Laporte City. Visitation will be held one hour before the service at the church. Memorials may be directed to the charity of your choice or by a plant or flower in her memory. Justin Malik Kutz, 23, of Vinton, passed away February 9th. Funeral services will be held Saturday, February 17, 2024, at 10.30 a.m. at First Baptist Church in Vinton. Interment will be at the Evergreen Cemetery. Arrangements are by Van Stanghus Tehin Funeral Home of Vinton. Jean Gersma, age 68, of Parkersburg, was born on April 3, 1955, in the car on the way to the hospital between Fern and Grundy Center. She graduated from Parkersburg High School in 1973 and continued her education at Hawkeye Tech in Waterloo with a degree in dental hygiene. Jean worked for a dentist in Waterloo until her son Peter was born. She played the organ and was choir director at the Reformed Church of Stout and First Congregational Church for many years. Jean later returned to Hawkeye Tech to further her education by receiving an associate degree in early childhood education. She worked at Kingsley Elementary in Waterloo for two years before accepting a position as a teacher's associate for the Applington Parkersburg School System where she worked for 26 years, retiring in 2023. Funeral services will be 1.30 p.m. Wednesday, February 14th at the First Congressional Church with burial in the Oak Hill Cemetery, both in Parkersburg. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday at the First Congregational Church in Parkersburg. Memorials may be directed to the First Congregational Church in Parkersburg. Darwin William Peters, age 69, of Waverly, Iowa, passed away on Thursday, February 8th at Hillcrest Home in Sumner, Iowa, from complications of Lyme disease and Parkinson's disease. Darwin was born on August 21st, 1954 in Waverly, Iowa. He was raised in Tripola and attended Tripola Community Schools, graduating with the class of 1972. After graduating, he farmed with his family on the family farm. He later started his own business, Peter's Logging and Milling. From there is where he got the idea to become a timber buyer. He enjoyed this job until his decline in health due to his Lyme disease. Per Darwin's wishes, his body has been cremated, and there will be a celebration of his life at a later date. 
A memorial has been established in Darwin's name for later designation and can be sent to Kaiser Corson Funeral Home. Attention, Darwin Peters Family, P.O. Box 215, Waverly, Iowa 50677. Marilyn Jean Mercado. Marilyn was born in Washington, Pennsylvania. She retired as Dean of Library Services at UNI in 2011. She was a devoted mother and grandmother, in addition to being passionate about books and reading. Celebration of Life will be at 4 p.m. on Thursday, February 15, 2024, with visitation to follow from 5 to 6 p.m. at Dahl Van Hove Schoof Funeral Home of Cedar Falls. Memorials may be directed to the family via the funeral home. Darlene May Preshak, 96, died on Friday, February 9th at Heritage Care and Rehabilitation Center in Mason City. She was born on May 25, 1927 in Kellogg. When she was four years old, her family moved to the farm she grew up on. She attended country school on the corner of her family's farm, being the only student through the eighth grade. She graduated from Kellogg High School before attending Drake University. She received her teaching degree and taught in Cedar Rapids for one year. On August 24, 1949, she was reunited in marriage to Maynard Preshak. They lived on a farm near Guernsey before moving to Iowa City in 1960, where she worked as a substitute teacher. They moved again in 1969 to Cedar Falls when they purchased the Vagabond Motel. Funeral services will be 10 a.m. Friday, February 23rd at Richardson Funeral Service in Cedar Falls. Visitation for one hour prior to the service. Interment at Guernsey Cemetery in Powasheet County. Memorials may be directed to the family to be dispersed at their discretion. Kathy Moore, 73, of Waterloo, died February 11th at New Aldea Lifescapes. Memorial Mass will be held 1 p.m. Friday, February 16th at Blessed Sacrament Catholic Church in Waterloo. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. February 15th at Locke Funeral Home on 4th, 1519 West 4th Street, Waterloo, with a 4 p.m. rosary. Danny, otherwise known as Dan McConnell, 78, of Cedar Falls, died at his home on February 7th. Visitation will be held February 15th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Locke at Tower Park in Waterloo. The memorial service will be Friday, February 16th at 11 a.m. at Locke at Tower Park. Memorials to the family or Cedar Valley Hospice. And now we turn our attention to sports headlines. In the boys' basketball roundup for February 13th, the IHSAA scores and results for the Iowa High School basketball. LaPorte City Union had a solid win over Oline. They handed 
them a tough loss of 61-48 to for the Iowa boys basketball victory at LaPorte City Union High on February 12th. Last season, LaPorte City Union and Old Wine squared off on January 20th at Old Wine High School. In recent action on February 5th, LaPorte City Union faced off against Gladbrook Rhinebeck and Old Wine took on Waterloo Christian on February 5th at Waterloo Christian School. Pella posts a win at Waverly Shellrock's expense. It took a while, but Pella eventually beat Waverly Shellrock 86-72 in the Iowa boys basketball action on February 12th. Gladbrook Rhinebeck overpowered Victor HLV in thorough fashion. It was a tough night for Victor HLV, which was overmatched by the Gladbrook Rhinebeck rival in this 72-30 verdict. In recent action on February 6th, Gladbrook Rhinebeck faced off against Waterloo Columbus. Traer North Tama pockets a slim win over Brooklyn BGM. Traer North Tama topped Brooklyn BGM 56-50 in a tough tilt for an Iowa boys basketball victory on February 12th. Recently, on February 1st, Traer North Tama squared off with Gilbertville Don Bosco in a basketball game. On to high school boys swimming. Butler paces Cedar Falls at the state meet. The 2024 Iowa High School Swim Championships took place in Iowa City on Saturday. Cedar Falls took eighth as team with a combined score of 128. West Des Moines Valley took first with 235. Waukee took second with a score of 219.5. And Linmar came in third with 187.5. Cedar Falls' John Butler earned a pair of podium finishes in his two events. The senior placed second in the 200-yard freestyle finals with a time of 138.48. West Des Moines Valley's Jacob Pins took first in the event. Butler took third in the 100-yard freestyle finals. Pleasant Valley's Owen Childs earned the top spot in the event. Cedar Falls senior Cole Wilson placed fourth in the 200 individual medley. On to state wrestling, Bosco freshman reign at Denver Districts. As expected, Don Bosco of Gilbertville rolled to the Class 1A District 1 title Saturday with 258 points and 10 state qualifiers at Denver High School. The Dons went 10 for 10 in finals matches as the five-time defending 1A champion had a banner day. Wapsie Valley qualified 8, South Winnesheek 5, Denver 4, and Hudson won to round out the schools with state qualifiers. Don Bosco has set itself up in great fashion to chase after its sixth consecutive 1A traditional state title. No program in the state has ever won six in a row, but three times, five teams have won five. Don Bosco has twice won five in a row in 2005 through 2010, 
and 2019 through 2023. And Waterloo West won five in a row back in 1942 through 1946. It would also be the Don's sixth overall traditional title, which would match it with Lisbon for second most all time. Waterloo West has 17 state titles to lead. It was a fairly dominant effort by the Dons as they got individual crowns from Hayden Schwab, Blake Irvine, Jackson Larson, Dawson Youngblood, Ethan Christopher, Kyler Knack, Andrew Kimball, Caden Knack, Landon Fernandez, and Kyler Salas. There might not have been a better collection of freshman wrestlers in the state of Iowa than the group that competed at the Denver District. Bosco's Schwab and Youngblood and Denver's Gavin Landers all came into the tournament ranked number one in 1A at their respective weights, and all three easily cruised to victory. There is a very good chance all three will end up on top of the podium next Saturday at Wells Fargo Arena. In addition to those three freshmen, Don Bosco had two more freshman champions Saturday, Christopher and Salas. Denver sophomore Bowden White took home the 144-pound crown, and he did it with a signature win over South Winnesheek's Colin Holm, 3-1 in the finals. Holm was last February's state runner-up at 138. A year ago, Wapsie Valley qualified a school record seven wrestlers to the state tournament. There now needs to be an update for the Warriors. Head coach Brian Crawl's squad qualified eight Saturday, a champion at 150 in Easton Crawl and seven runners-up. He will be joined at the state by Caden Belinsky, Brody Kletch, Dallas Tissue, Kanan Decker, Brock Claych, Drew Lansing, and Derek Hilsenbeck. On to some sports news at UNI. Northern Iowa head women's tennis coach Chris Sager said he hoped the Panthers 0-2 showing against Creighton and Nebraska-Omaha would serve as a wake-up call for his team. Over the weekend, the Panthers answered that call. UNI fell to Northern Illinois 6-1 on Friday. Though the number one doubles team of Darda Deleka and Lorena Cardoza defeated the Huskies team 6-3. Kim Zizek earned the Panthers' lone point in the loss. On Saturday, the Panthers found more success, sweeping Western Illinois 7-0. The win included wins at all three double spots for UNI. Up next... The Panthers host Iowa Central Community College on Friday at 5 p.m. and North Dakota on Sunday at 10 a.m. In women's softball, North Iowa head softball coach Ryan Jacobs described the Panthers' 7-3 loss to Western Illinois on Sunday as disappointing and embarrassing. After picking up three consecutive wins to open the Doc Halverson Unidome Classic, the Panthers dropped their final two games of the weekend with a 6-2 loss to Nebraska-Omaha on Saturday, in addition to the loss to the Leathernecks. 
According to Jacobs, the panther's effort was not where it needed to be, nor where he expected it to be following a strong start with winds over western Illinois, Butler, and northern Illinois on Friday and Saturday. However, despite the disappointing conclusion to the weekend, Jacobs expressed optimism that the Panthers could utilize the result as a motivating factor moving forward. He specifically pointed to the 2023 season in which UNI opened 0-5 in the Unidome Classic as evidence that UNI can learn. The Panthers remain idle through the weekend before beginning a 11-day road trip consisting of stops in Memphis, Tennessee for a single matchup with Memphis, Auburn, Alabama for the Plainsman Invite, Birmingham, Alabama for a single matchup against UAB and Tuscaloosa for the T-Mobile Crimson Classic. The road trip is headlined by contests against number 20 Auburn, where they play twice, and 14, number 14 Alabama. And we have some news coming out of the Cedar Bend Humane Society. Call it puppy love. Blue is a blue-eyed, energetic American bulldog, always ready to run and play. Lady, a pit bull, is a sweetheart, somewhat shy and a little lazy. The dogs are inseparable, each other's shadow, a devoted pair, and they're both deaf. Blake Delagardell and his wife Nicole adopted the dogs from Cedar Bend Humane Society, but at different times. Blue won Blake's heart first after the loss of their 17-year-old pointer princess. The couple took a kennel, toys, and other items to donate to the animal shelter in July 2023. Nicole said, let's just take a look at the dogs, and there was Blue in one of the kennels. I thought she was cute. She jumped up on a wall and inched her way over to me, he recalled. That face, those bright blue eyes, and the slow way she inched over to me, it was adorable. And Della Gardell was smitten. He didn't know Blue was deaf until shelter workers told him. We thought about what it would mean having a deaf dog, we decided it wasn't a problem, that we would could figure it out, he said. They filled out paperwork and planned a meet-and-greet for Gizmo, their 17-year-old chihuahua, with the 65-pound American bulldog. Someone else was interested in adopting Blue, too. But several days later, Blue was still at the shelter. Della Gardell called Cedar Bend and spoke with adoption counselor Ann Barnard. Blue originally came into the shelter as a stray on August 8, 2022. She was returned to the shelter in April 2023, adopted again on June 1, 2023, and returned the next day because she was too much to handle, said Barnard. Della Gardell had no qualms. I told Anne, I want Blue, he said. On July 6, Blue was on her way to her new forever home. Blue loves going to the dark dog park with Della Gardell, where she runs and plays off her energy. Until Lady, Blue's best friend, was at Corgi. We made a mistake of not so socializing our pointer with the other dogs, and we didn't want to make that mistake again. There's a group of 13 of us who text each other, Are you going to the park tonight? And new friends have been brought into the group. Lady's story is similar. 
She came into the shelter as a stray in February 2023 and was reclaimed by her owner. In October 2023, Animal Control brought her into the shelter again and the owner relinquished ownership to Cedar Bend. She was another beautiful white deaf dog. No one was looking at her. She came, became one of our longest residents. These dogs shut down in the shelter. Lady rarely came to the front of her kennel, and she never really knew what was going on around her, Barnard recalled. On a whim, she recalled Della Gardell in January. I said, you're not going to believe it. We have another beautiful, white, female, deaf dog. I told Blake I didn't want him to feel like I was pushing him into it, but I wanted him to see this dog. The Della Gardells met Lady, and again, there was an instant connection. My wife wasn't sure if she wanted another big dog. She wanted a cuddle dog, but I said, come with me and take a look. She fell in love with Lady, Della Gardells said. With Lady, her chances were not very good for getting adopted, he said. We brought her home as a foster. With two deaf dogs, you never know how it's going to go. Blue was excited. A little sketchy at first, he said, but she calmed down. When they arrived at home, the pair jumped out of the truck and started playing. They instantly became friends. Barely one day after getting Lady home, the couple made the adoption final. Of course, it's not been all hearts and flowers. There have been hiccups along the way, but Blake has never given up. He's so patient with the dogs and willing to work with them. I look at them now and they're both happy and goofy, and Blake absolutely loves them both, Barnard said. The dogs are roughly about two years old. Lady loves napping, but when it's time to play, she plays hard. Blue likes to wander and pesty, pester Lady. They adore peanut butter smeared on milk bone treats and love gnawing and squeaky toys. The Della Dardells work patiently to communicate with their deaf dogs using eye contact and hand signals. They also talk to their dogs so the pups will recognize facial expressions. Blue knows her hand signals and Lady is still learning. Eye contact is vital, Della Gardell said. They have to see you to know what you want. The only thing is, when we're at the dog park, I can't call them to come back. I wave, then Blue will come. Lady watches Blue to see what she's going to do. Deaf dogs are as smart and can learn as quickly as hearing dogs. Socialization is important. Because they can't hear anyone approaching from behind or while sleeping, they can be easily started and react defensively. The Della Gardells are diligent in desensitizing their dogs to touch with frequent, gentle touches and good girl treats. Tail wagging is the universal. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Tuesday, February 13, 2024. I'm your reader, Grace Barter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. <laughs>